you are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and I'm interviewing State Representative Andrew Fink of the 58th District. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I first want to ask about the Republican governor candidates who did not have enough valid signatures, and so they were polled. What are your thoughts on this? Well, it, it, it seems to me that there are two things that really no one is disputing. Uh, The first is that these candidates did not have a sufficient number of legal signatures. Um, I don't even think that they, in their uh, litigation following the Board of Canvassers' decision not to put them on the ballot, I don't think that they even really claimed that they had enough. They did object, I think, to the process that the Secretary of State uses in analyzing whether the signatures are valid. Uh, in this case, my understanding is that the the staff at the Secretary of State's office um, checked around 10 percent of the of the signatures that they suspected were invalid and found that 100 percent of those signatures were invalid. So in this case, I don't really think anybody believes that these candidates actually had sufficient signatures. Uh, the other thing I'd say about it is that uh, no one disputes that these candidates were also totally defrauded. I mean, probably criminally, uh, or at least potentially criminally, I guess. I, uh, I don't want to prejudge a case before it goes to trial, but it certainly seems like that's a live possibility, uh, and almost certainly civilly, where the, the folks were paid to do a service that they did not perform, which obviously gives the, the uh, payer a right to get their money back. So... Those two, those two facts not being disputed, you kind of look at, at whether the process is sufficient, and it's, it might need to be clarified, I think, in statute. Um, although, again, in this case, I, don't, I really don't think any process was going to save these guys by the time we got to the, the uh, filing deadline. One, one of their objections that I think has, has some merit to it is that the Secretary of State's office evidently knew or suspected that there was some uh, that there was that there was a significant number of bad signatures uh, earlier than the filing deadline, and they could maybe have let the candidates know that. But as it stands right now, I don't think they're obligated to, which would raise the question of, you know, do, if they were going to, they would presumably have to tell everybody, which means they'd have to start checking all the signatures ahead of time or whatever for that to be fair. But at the end of the day, when you need to be serious about election integrity, that includes ballot access and people that haven't met the legal requirements by getting 15,000 uh, signatures to, to become gubernatorial candidates have have failed to meet the legal requirement to get on the ballot. The last thing I'd say, and, and I have to admit, I, I've endorsed Tudor Dixon, who's one of the candidates who made it. So uh, if if I just want that disclosure to be out there, because I you know my my reason is I think Tudor is the best candidate uh, to win this primary election, and certainly the best candidate to face off against Governor Gretchen Whitmer. And defeating Governor Whitmer is I think the top electoral priority for Republicans in this state. So. I want to be very clear that that's my position on these candidates. And so if you think that colors this analysis, fair is fair. I just want to let everybody know that even if Tudor hadn't made it, you know, and, and her her uh, petitions were subject to some scrutiny as well for different reasons. The signatures were, weren't the problem. It was the format of the petition that was found to be um, not a violation of the law by the Board of, of Canvassers. I think that was an accurate judgment. But I'm just saying if she hadn't made it, I would still look at the fact that we went from 10 to five candidates here. That's probably a good thing electorally for the party because having 10 candidates creates a lot of noise and it also leads to the possibility of a person with a very small plurality winning the nomination without really significant support from the members of the party. Obviously, in a 
even a three-way race, it's common for someone without a majority but only a plurality of the primary voters to be the nominee. That's fine, and we adjust to that, and we and we carry on. Uh, and for the most part, we can close ranks. But as a partisan, you know, as an elected Republican myself, as a, as a uh, basically a lifelong uh, conservative activist, uh, I would like to see a tidier primary uh, than. 10 people. And so having, you know, maybe three or four pretty prominent candidates in a, in a five person field, uh, will produce, I think all of the kind of difficult conversations that Republicans need to have when you're, when you're the out party as, as we are at the statewide level right now, uh, you gotta be really serious and on your toes. And I think that having three or four strong candidates coming from some different places. So, you know, a fair amount of shared, uh, you know, shared areas of concern, but also some differences in approach differences in positions in some cases, I think we'll have a nice, robust primary debate, um, and uh, you know, I I fully expect to be able to support whoever comes out of the thing, uh, whether it's the candidate I've endorsed, Tudor Dixon or not. Uh, but it'll be good to have had all of this kind of this clarifying experience over the summer, and it'll be better with five than it would have been with ten. Do you think this fraud could cause a negative outcome of the election because of uh, maybe a poor reflection upon the Republican Party? Well, I mean, given that half of the candidates were able to, to collect the signatures, which I mean, that also, by the way, it undermines some of the arguments that were made about about accepting them in the first place. I mean, I even heard one person say that, you know, COVID made it difficult to collect signatures. I don't really think that even the person making that argument thought that was a serious argument. But these candidates that made it all found found it doable. And, you know, the way they did it was by by going grassroots. These guys got volunteers to circulate their petitions for the most part rather than paid professionals. Now, there's nothing wrong with hiring a paid professional, although you better, evidently, you better be careful about who you hire because you can get defrauded. If you don't check them yourself, then you're, you're obviously now going to be in trouble. Uh, but, but I actually don't really see how uh, some individual candidates performing poorly on this test who are then not even among the options for Republicans on the ballot – uh, I don't see that contributing to, to a, a lower opinion of the GOP itself because, you know, we went through this process. These are the five candidates we now have to choose from. And, and whoever comes out of that ahead is going to have had over, I think all of them submitted over 20,000 grassroots signatures. So I think that's a actually, that's a good sign of, of engagement from the grassroots that uh, that should help kind of provide some momentum coming out of August. For the November ballot, there was only one Michigan initiative petition that was submitted, and there were many others who wanted to submit it, but they missed the deadline. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think that there was actually, so I know in, in the case of Secure My Vote, which is a petition drive that I'm, I'm kind of the most uh, uh, interested in, um, there, there was some of the same difficulty where some signatures were collected fraudulently. In that case, so the Secure My Vote committee figured it out, maybe partially because they got kind of a preview with the gubernatorial candidates, but in any event, they they sort of figured out that they had an issue, and so they did not submit signatures that they thought were invalid. And they they actually get did a press conference with a different stack of petitions, and they sort of said these this is the chunk that we think are bad. We might still have enough without that, but we're going to make doubly certain. And so they they missed the deadline, but they're going to keep pushing to get it on the ballot uh, later. Um, I thought that was a pretty responsible way to deal with it. It's unfortunate. Uh, and I look forward to voting on that petition drive. But uh, in the meantime, I think that was a responsible thing to do. In other cases, yeah, I don't. I think that some some of them actually came less close. You know, they got they they got less farther along, less far along uh, than even Secure My Vote did. And I I mean, some of that might have to do with kind of new patterns of um, 
of behavior post COVID, but I don't really think that's the main issue. Again, the, the gubernatorial candidates had no problem. I mean, they only had to get 30,000, but you know, we did unlock Michigan a couple of years ago. I'm sure by any measure, it's the most successful petition drive in Michigan history. Half a million people signed it when we only needed like 340,000, actually, I think more than half a million. Um, so if you do a good enough job explaining why something's important, you can get folks to come out and, you know, for unlock, we would see, it wasn't just me. I, I hosted some of these, but other people did too, where you'd put a Facebook notice out and say, I'm going to be at this park at this time. And you get it at least a few people and often more like a few dozen people to show up and sign that thing. And that was a great expression of where the people were. You know, I like to emphasize that our, our state constitution begins with the idea that all political power is inherent in the people. And uh, getting a good idea of where they are when you get the message out, like Unlock Michigan did, I, you know, I thought that was a great expression of where the people were. And so when we voted on that in the legislature, uh, which is not subject to the governor's veto once the signatures are, are uh, certified by the secretary of state, you know, that was one where, where I knew that we were with the people on that issue uh, in, in a way that you don't always know because so many people had actually weighed in themselves. So anyway, it, the, the, the overall point is it's hard work to get one of these things done, but if you really do a good job of it, you can do it. I think the number of them that were out there was also potentially a contributor. Whether you're a, a conservative like I am or, or a liberal, there were a, a few different petitions on each side kind of of the political spectrum. And so the energy and attention was probably somewhat more divided than it was, say, in 2020 when Unlock was the only game in town. You are listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. My name is Lauren Scott, and I'm interviewing State Representative Andrew Fink of the 58th District. Gas prices continued to rise nationwide because of inflation, and the governor has a suggested compromise. Do you think this suggested compromise would be of any help? Well, usually when the governor suggests a compromise, it's that she wants us to do things that either we already said we were going to do or uh, things that she has said that she expects us to do without any real compromise. And I think that this is a this is something of a version of that where you have these two different ideas. One is a gas tax holiday because it's immediately responsive to the most extreme inflation that we're dealing with. And that's why we already passed a gas tax holiday. And then she wants to combine it with sending out uh, checks to Michigan families, um, presumably with her signature on it, which would be a one-time adjustment based on how much money we have this year. And I guess I think like the, the, the financial situation the state is in now reflects a misalignment of our tax policy and our spending priorities. So we have, we have more money than we actually need. We should address that issue at, in a fundamental way rather than simply just kind of send some of the money back out which I, I just don't think is really a serious approach to, you know, the state is taking in more money than it needs. The people need more money than they have. Let's adjust that rather than uh, do a one-time check going out. So uh, whether there can be a deal reached here or not, I mean, I, I think I've said many times, if, if people want to talk about tax reform, tax relief, I will talk about it. So I'm not saying it's a conversation that I can't participate in, but it has to be a real reform. It has to be a real attempt to you know, confront the problems that we have and prevent them from coming back up. I mean, one other thing that I don't think the governor has, I mean, I guess related to what I was saying before about things that we're already trying to work on, like a gas tax holiday, um, you know, we've, we passed small business relief for businesses coming out of the COVID 
shutdowns uh, like two or three times before she finally signed it. I mean, she vetoed it a couple of times beforehand, and then roughly the exact same uh, package was eventually signed. And these are businesses that, you know, say a restaurant who that was closed for half a year but charged all the same property taxes and license fees and inspection fees and whatnot. Uh, we wanted to give them some some relief back and she said no two or three times before she finally said yes and then she took all the credit for it i mean that was not the governor's priority protecting small businesses is something that every politician will tell you about but i can show you that it was a priority for me and my colleagues in a way that it never was for her and that's the same thing with tax reform so again if she gets to a point where where she's serious enough about it that we can we can make something happen i think that could be good for for michigan families certainly but i just I think that it's very cynical for her to talk in her first state of the state about raising the gas tax 45 cents and now be acting as though she's the one leading on gas, a gas tax holiday when she's already vetoed it. Michigan state lawmakers are pushing for more gun control after the shootings in Buffalo and Texas. What are your thoughts on this as far as what it would mean for Michigan and the citizens who value the Second Amendment? Well, all citizens should value the Second Amendment in every constitutional protection that the citizen has. And, you know, the, the, the concept of citizenship and, and, you know, again, the Michigan state constitution says that all political power is inherent in the people. The, the United States constitution, the preamble begins with we, the people of the United States do, you know, we make this constitution. This is our document. And so when it's amended to include the bill of rights a few years after it's initially adopted, Those are rights that every American should value and should treasure and should expect the government to respect and should expect the government to support. And so when we when we look at issues of gun violence, and I I would say this could be of any kind of gun violence because the school shootings or other kind of um, mass shootings, which, you know, they tend to be especially horrifying because they tend to be planned in a way to, to choose targets that are that are defenseless and in some sense kind of random i mean it's similar to a terrorist attack in that like it's not it, does, it, it may or may not be a greater i mean in, in some cases obviously it is a greater volume of life lost which is another reason to be extra sad uh, but it is also designed to kind of intimidate everyday americans who don't know that they're putting themselves in a dangerous position and and by the way i guess this would be the second thing i'd say is so you have these rights that, that you expect to be respected they are challenged because of abuse of either abuse of those rights or, or going beyond the rights themselves. I mean, obviously, the crimes that are committed are beyond the rights themselves. In some cases, gun crimes are also committed outside the law uh, in other ways. But the government's responsibility to provide protection to children in a government school, which where attendance is more or less compulsory, unless you have kind of another plan, homeschooling, pro- private schooling, or, or whatever, your child is actually supposed to be, according to the state, in school. Uh, and if the, if the government can't keep the children safe there, it does raise serious questions about it. And that, that certainly appears to have been the case in Texas. I still have not seen an explanation for exactly why the police response was as evidently dysfunctional as it was. I mean, as, as this story first came out, you're kind of going, well, all right, so this would be interesting to see how this is explained. And I haven't even seen an explanation. So that's pretty horrifying. And it's the government not doing its job of protecting the right to life that these children enjoyed. Uh, and so I guess I think addressing the way that the government actually failed in that, in that sense is something that we should be able to talk about without cynicism. And so when we talk about hardening targets like a school by 
you know, there's been this this discussion of a single entry system. Well, that's actually very conventional at schools, and it's been mocked by some people who would prefer to simply go at uh, gun rights um, as as kind of a, a fig leaf or something. But it's actually it's a perfectly conventional uh, way to control entry, and there are other reasons you don't want people in in schools. I mean, it's not it, security in schools is not limited to mass shooters, which Obviously, there are more security incidents that are not mass shootings than are mass shootings, whether it's a non-custodial parent showing up or something like that. So I think that that we have a school safety task task force in the House right now that uh, I'm expecting to produce some recommendations that both um, both people that are very protective of firearms rights and um, and people who I guess I don't expect the firearms rights themselves to be the subject of of significant reform here. And I guess the last thing I'll say about it is one, you know, one, one perspective that I hear with some frequency is, well, no one needs this weapon or that weapon. And I guess I would just say for the, for the sake of argument, let's just grant that, but you wouldn't actually shut down or limit another right because you think no one quote needs it. I mean, most of us don't need to say most of the things we say every day. I mean, certainly no one needs to say something nasty to their roommate or their spouse or their, you know, work, co-workers or something. Uh, but we don't think that the way to deal with interpersonal conflict is for the government to restrict speech more. And so I guess I would just, I, I would challenge those who think that the obvious solution is to restrict uh responsible citizens from possessing firearms, I, I guess I challenge them to look at it as a question of what fully formed citizenship in our country is supposed to be like. Our state constitution, our federal constitution, both expressly protect uh, a right to keep and bear arms. The state constitution says for the defense of himself and the state, the citizen has the right to keep and bear arms for those reasons. And we should take that seriously and expect our citizens to have the, the kind of robust uh, um, self-government that being an armed citizen uh, include you know implies uh, that's my that's my overall approach to it. I do think that there are possibly some re- reforms that um, uh, could take place here, but I don't think they're really going to be about uh, firearms possession or, or acquisition. I think they're more likely to be about mental health and uh, and the schools themselves. And those are both things that we prioritize in our school budget in, in our uh, budget that's been passed out of the house this year. You authorized a new law that requires impoundment to be recorded within 24 hours, thus allowing vehicle owners to have more time to locate and retrieve their cars. What exactly is this law and what is the significance of this law in relation to the Constitution? That's a great question. I mean, so this is one where um, there was some litigation uh, involving sort of whether the rights of a person are being deprived when the state uh, under our under our, well, I guess still current statutes, it's the effective date of this one, I think is in August because it's three months after um, after the governor signed it. So uh, currently, if, if your vehicle is towed, then the police agency is obligated to input that into what's called lane law enforcement information network within seven days. And that would still be the case under this statute, but, but within a day or a day later, the, uh, the law enforcement agency would be required to, or will be required uh, since this thing is going to be the law now, uh, will be re- will be required to input uh, your vehicle in lien as impounded before the abandonment procedure uh, kicks off a week later. The instance in which this kind of c- cropped up were it happened to be in the city of Detroit, but I don't really think it's anything particularly unique unique to Detroit. It's just that's our biggest city, so lots of stuff happens there. But cars are being towed, and then. Uh, 
not entered into lien until a week later, which is legal, I think. It was, or it, it followed the statute, but it really didn't give a person very good due process because, let's say, you lent your car to someone else who disappeared, got arrested, dropped off the face of the earth, something, uh, and uh, or um, I think a real life example of it that I've seen as a local ordinance prosecutor is a grandson. Uh, borrows with or without permission usually that's ambiguous uh, his grandmother's car it gets towed and the grandmother doesn't know where it is and let's say the uh, college age kid who borrowed it didn't really remember where he left it or something like that these things are not implausible i have seen similar similar things happen uh, and that's the kind of instance that led to the litigation that led to this statue being necessary um, that grandmother has no way of knowing where her vehicle is until it's entered into the statewide law enforcement inf- information network. So if the, you know if she's from uh, Jackson and the car is impounded in uh, Petoskey, she's not going to know that until it's in a, a statewide database. And if that doesn't happen until the abandonment process has begun, then she winds up dealing with a greater administrative burden than she really needs to. If she can just see it's impounded and then send somebody to the tow lot in Petoskey to pay the impound fee of probably a few hundred bucks and get the car out, it could save her a lot of work and a lot of headache and some money. So that's that's kind of the basic idea is that if the government's going to literally take your property, they got to give you the best, at least a reasonable way of knowing where your property is and how to get it back. All right, thank you. That's all the questions I have for you today, but I appreciate you taking the time to join us. Thank you, Lauren. Our guest has been State Representative Andrew Fink of the 58th District. I'm Lauren Scott on Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM.